As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And today, I am honouring you all with someone who is a teacher to me, someone who has challenged me in ways I had not expected and I'm learning so much from. Welcome, Professor Grover Gee, to The Malcolm Effect. How are you? I am fine. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honour and privilege to have you here. So today I want to speak about the legacy of Sekultura and why I felt it necessary and important to do so. Online in the Twitter space and Twitter sphere, there seems to be a painting or rendering of the legacy of Sekultura, which seems unfamiliar to what I have come to know of the man and read of him. People calling him a tyrant, a dictator, a despot. And I haven't found a balanced take on 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 online in many places so i want to kind of you know take a balanced approach to the legacy and to the man so first and foremost do you mind sketching out for our listeners what guinea was like in the lead up to independence well guinea historically had uh, two major political groups in the futa jalong in the savannah we had a theocratic state formation in the futa jalong with nine provinces and etc. And then we had a very centralized state structure in uh, the Savannah, which is um, sort of many centuries of transmutations from um, the result of many centuries of transmutations from the Mali Empire to, to the Wasulu, to Samuritue. And then we had on the coast and the northern forest, groups of people who were so-called stateless, a safer societies. And uh, colonialism or colonial authorities played a lot on those differences and in many ways, for schooling, for instance, did not favor people, say, in the rainforest, who were the last to go to school. And in some ways, because the resistance of Samuel Touré to colonial rule was the longest of in all of French colonial history, 17 years, the colonial power favored the footage alone, aided by the fact that it was more conservative, but also the fact that uh, in their own colonial topology had thought that uh, those people had much longer tradition of schooling and etc., and therefore would be natural leaders or at least intermediaries to colonial power. And basically, the struggle for decolonization operated. That's the structures within which the struggle for uh, independence happened. And different leaders tried to use instruments from those, you know, in, in those contexts uh, to gain power. And secretary, the man we are talking about today, actually defied both the orthodoxies, political orthodoxies of colonial powers in the Vuta in the Savannah, and decided to opt for support from labor unions and market women, and then managed to supplant all of the political leaders and institutions that were grounded in the old sort of old formations of footage alone, geocracy or the Malenke centralized structures, which were all more conservative. And of course, the um, World War II and what happened after World War II in the French Empire seemed to favor sort of a breaking off from those structures and having a more progressive movement, which is what Secretary did. 
Thank you so much for laying that historical context for us. So then now let's speak a bit about Sekulture's actual rise to power. If you mind sketching the picture out for that, how it took place, when did Guinea gain independence and what was the scenes like? Sekulture came to power on the back of a labor strike and that labor strike has been documented in Usman Sambenu's God's Bits of Power, God's Bits of Wood, which was that in French West Africa, labor unions, the railroad, railroad that sort of took our products out to the sea to go to Europe and etc. The workers had a strike in 1947 throughout the, the entire empire. The strike lasted in Guinea longer than it did in any of the other countries, in part because Secretary found a formula. The way the French broke the strike was uh, to close down the print media, radio, and then public gatherings to, to prohibit public gatherings. Secretary went to market women, who of course had to sell, therefore were able to, to move around didn't have major newspapers to be banned, to be shut down, and relied on market women to pass the message of the party. And market women also helped feed the strikers in Guinea. And so the strike lasted in Guinea more than any other part of West Africa. And that's actually what gave Secretary his, his power. Initially, actually, people derided his political coalition by calling them mostly a party of high school dropouts, yet the strikers were not educated or postal workers, etc. So they called them high school dropouts, divorced women and prostitutes marking the market women who supported his political party. But it actually turned out to be the magic formula because the French could not find their way to, to, to stamp out his political movement. Since it, it operated in a more informal structure from the state structures, you know, the formal media, this and that, and yeah. So that's how he managed to do that. Okay, so Secretary comes to power. Guinea yeah, and, achieves independence. So carry on, yes? Yes, Secretary comes to power. So, when, so the forces that made him succeed were far more radical and far more progressive, and they pushed him against his will, actually. That's documented. Initially, he did not want to vote no on the referendum in 58. But the workers who backed him and the women pushed him toward having, toward defying the goal. And, and the secretary's power was born as a sin against French grandeur. That de Gaulle himself came in, in August 58 in, in Guinea to plead for the French Union and Secretary defied him. And that was unacceptable on the part of French, the, the Americans, and all of Western powers. Because the goal, obviously, was one this larger-than-life character. And this young labor unionist, who didn't even have a high school education, you know, confronted him with one of the most radical speeches about republicanism and freedom, and et cetera, et cetera, and they thought he humiliated him. And in fact, the sign of that humiliation is that the only time the goal left any sin forgetting his heart, his very familiar heart was in guinea after that speech he forgot it they had to take it back to the airplane yeah oh wow okay so, so, so we so, see yes yeah no go ahead please no so we see okay this is the scene in which secretary uh, has come to power he emerges in a time of he's emerging from amongst or within the contradictions of the colonial yoke of the french colonial yoke so speaking about in the early stages of his governance, what was his priorities for Guinea and what was his priorities for the continent? Yes. Guinea, Guinea came, the secretary came to power as a Pan-African. He, he immediately joined Kwame Nkrumah. Ghana had been independent in, in 57 and Guinea in 58, so they were close together. And of course, later they would form the Guinea-Ghana-Mali Union. And so he was very Pan-Africanist and he came back committed to freeing Africa, the two of them. So... In the Congo crisis, you will see Secretary support for Fatah Lumumba. Secretary was one of his earlier supporters of the Algerian independence movement. 
Secretary contributes to the colonization movement throughout the Portuguese Empire. I mean, in that regard, he's actually his record is unimpeachable. He he probably was one of the most committed Pan-Africanists ever on that continent. No, there's no independence movement on the continent in Africa that did not receive help from Guinea. That is actually unquestionable. In fact, in Mozambique, Secretary went as far as lend teachers to Mozambique. Secretary sent 500 teachers to Mozambique when Mozambique became independent to go teach, educate people because Mozambique did not have teachers, enough teachers. So that is actually, that is unquestionable. But because, so that was the second scene of Secretary. The first one was to have defined the goal and sort of diminish the goal stature so publicly, of course, among black people in Africa. And, and forgive me, that was also one of the part of the problem. But also because, I mean, that was his first thing. The second thing was that he decided to help in the liberation of, of Africa and put against him the Portuguese and the French and everybody together. And of course, that led, that's why Portugal invaded Guinea. So in the narrative of, of, about Guinea, Secretary, we don't talk about the multiple assassination attempt, which people used to think were false, but has now been documented. Every single one of the plots have been documented. It's substantiated. And, and the invasion also was not fabricated. It was true. Speaking about his early governance then as well, you don't mind just kind of speaking about his early governance. How did he rule in Guinea in the early days? In the early days, actually, I, I will tell you, even until he died, Secretary had majority support in Guinea. In fact, that's the thing that baffles people's mind is why that man had to have a single party system. Because he, he would beat his opponent every day in any election. But I think that what people who know actually Guinea know is that his two Pan-Africanist friends, Kwame Nkrumah and Afro Kwame Nkrumah Modibo Keita in Mali, were both overthrown. But before then, Sylvanus Olympio was killed for his opposition to the CFA friend. So Secretary basically, the lesson he drew from that was that it would never happen to him. And I think that was actually a very fatal mistake for, on his part. Because psychologically, he, he became very, very obsessed with never losing to his opponent and not ending up dead like, like the rest of them. And so after the invasion, his power turned very nasty. But initially, we all owe public education given to, to Secretary, infrastructure to Secretary. Nobody after Secretary has marched what he did. And the one thing everybody recognizes today is that of all the leaders we have after independence, he's the only one who did not take a dime from the public coffers for himself. When he died, people suspected he had money stored everywhere. He actually did none of that. Right? So in terms of personal integrity, in terms of commitment, there's actually no doubt. But the violence after 1970 is real. So we cannot paper over that. So let's speak about that, because I feel like people tend to focus on that. People don't tend to speak on about his policies. So we can return to some of the policies and some of the good things he's done. But I think people will be interested to hear what led up to the 1970s violence and what took place and why the secretary act in the way he did. And, and again, if you don't mind including in that, in that on your response, how as us as Pan-Africanists looking back on this man, how should we judge him? Well, if uh, Pan-Africanists, and, and I've talked to a lot of people in a lot of multiple fora before this one, I, I often say the modern states, we have to be honest, the modern state system, the state machinery is a very violent instrument. And during the Cold War, on both sides, people use the state machinery to violent ends. You know, when people talk about the violence in Guinea, for instance, they don't talk about the invasion, right? And we know what any country on this planet has done after being invaded, including, you know, nine, after 9-11 here, which is not to condone it, actually, because I'm very fearful of, of, of that kind of state power. 
But we forget that the Kambuaro were people who were sent to jail in Guinea. The Kambuaro was named for a policeman who secretary's opponent threw from a helicopter and crashed down. So if you want to talk about violence, I always talk about Buaro. Buaro is a very, you know, if you think about the name Kambuaro, it has those two things are there, but people don't see the other side. The other side was that Buaro was a victim of secretary's opponent who thought that those secretary has won elections organized by the French themselves, that they were entitled to overthrow secretary because they didn't like him. So secretary may have been the violent, whatever Tyrone called him, whatever it is, but the Democrat and the Republican was secretary actually. That, that is, we have to be smart about that, which is again, the state system, the state is a very violent one and people instrumentalize it and, and the way in which you use it, I wouldn't want it against, right? So what has happened was why the narrative of the tyranny has settled in and we forgot what part is that after he died and the Kambuaro stories came out, everybody, including myself, had to give people whose relatives died in the Kambuaro to heal. It was a difference. But it's not that the political narrative was correct, actually. But that narrative is not the one that has taken over because it was in the interest of France and the West to focus on secretaries on the Kambuaro to occult what they had tried to do to subvert independence throughout the whole continent and to crush Pan-Africanism. So it was easy for them to, to carry on that message. And so the media, BBC, France Center, etc., and Secretary's political opponent, who were better educated than him, because he did not even have a high school degree, who were also connected, more connected than him, managed to pass that message. And we actually, it occult what life was in Guinea. Like, right? And, and, and if there is a sense in any country in West Africa today, bad known actually, where there's a sense of sort of citizenship, like nationalism innate, it's in Guinea. When we had the civil wars in Mali, around Guinea, uh, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, Sierra Leone, I was invited to the State Department once to talk about why Guinea was not collapsing. I said, because you all think, you know, you have bought into the narrative about Secretary, but Guinea is actually, there's really citizenship in Guinea. Those sending young people to serve in regions other than their own, having to send students do civil service work 18 months after university in some village, etc. All of them instilled in us something, a sense of Guinea that cannot be just broken down. And that is actually what even all of the refugees from Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, Sierra Leone, Liberia, they were all in Guinea. Guinea has the highest pressure, but the civil war did not come to Guinea. And, and I think that and people in the State Department were initially skeptical but over time i've had people from that meeting who call and say there is really a guinea exception and, and that's the work of secretary i mean we, we have he created a nation he did he really did of course the cost of that for people who opposed him was again very high Kambuaro. but if you look at state violence especially the french eliminating every african political leader who they didn't like from umiobe umie olympio you go down the line i mean come on <laughs> You know, Cold War violence was not, you know, the corporate, the real corporate were not these little African leaders. I think that the violence was programmed from somewhere and then other people reacted to it. But the reactions are what we look at and we don't look at the structure of the Cold War and how the West wanted to stamp out African progressivism. And they really tried to. Absolutely. So, I mean, you speak about there being a deference to allow peoples and families to heal. But then when we're trying to do correctives on narratives, what should the narrative be when we think about Camp Boro and Secretaries and the violence that occurred under his presidency? Well, I have a friend who tells me that uh, 
the best way to start a conversation on that is is to recall Shakespeare. Sorry, uh, <laughs> okay. I know we are talking about paranoianism. <laughs> no, it's you fine. Know, <laughs> security, the line between security and paranoia is actually not is very thin. Look at after post post nine eleven in America, right? About Islamophobia, Islamophobia and etc. So, state security operates in, in in a context in which the ideology of security and, and, and paranoia can really be very close. And we have to be, we really have to be mindful of that. But what we cannot do is allow people to define our own historical trajectories. That is a very dangerous thing because then we don't know what actually happened in the course of our own lives and we succumb to these easy judgments, right? But of the crimes committed during the Cold War, again, France, whatever, I, I don't think Secretary is actually the worst. But, and, and, and I say that with all, again, be mindful that people who lost their families will all actually really have to, to, to attend to their feelings and, and et cetera, et cetera. That, that, that you cannot let that go, right? You have to respect that. But our national histories cannot be held hostage also by people's private stories because then the national purpose gets lost to people's private sentiments. And that actually is, for me, also a problem, right? We, but we have to pay attention to the state as an instrument of violence in our own political project and to be mindful of what it can do. And it's not always good. The state instrument is, of violence is actually, monopoly of violence is, is, has a double edge and we have to be mindful. But we also have to be mindful of our right to protect, right? That, that those Pan-Africanists after Olympio, Nkrumah, Modibokita and et cetera, that the rest of them have to say, we have to survive. And, and if you deny that too, then you are either politically naive or you are being disingenuous. But I go back to that. Secretary's conception of Africa, of Pan-Africanism, of his right to young people, to education, to give us the means, whatever, that actually was very coherent. And you may disagree with part of it. We all have the right to quarrel with ideological how people present things. But his commitment were real. That, even today, not a single one of his opponents can actually doubt that. And they will not talk about that because it's easier to just talk about Kambuaro and not, not have to dissect that. But his commitment were real. Okay. So then we can understand the commitments. We can understand the narratives. One thing I've seen in discussions then, people tend to paint out what happens in Kambuaro as a, almost a direct attack and targeting of a specific tribe and the tribe being the Fulani tribe. Um, people will say Sekoture would like to, or he targeted the Fulani tribe for this? Two things. The first one is empirical. There was never a point during Sekutu's career as president where more than a third of his cabinet was not Fulani. We talk about Fulani as if ideologically they were coherent. No. The vice president of Guinea, until he died, was Saifula Jalo. During the, the entire Congo crisis, Sekutu's spokesperson was Teli Jalo, who became Secretary General of, of the African Union. Uh, yeah, of African Union, and then of course died in the Cambo, for sure. But to say that it was actually ethnic is actually really, really, really dangerous and disingenuous. No, the only thing for me personally I found objectionable in Secretary's narrative was when, after 1968, he decided that the French had favored the Pearl, and it was his job to balance that. And so we had a version of what we call affirmative action in America in Guinea for other ethnic groups because the Pearl represented 50, more than 60% of bureaucracy of educated people and etc. And so he lashed on to examples of university students complaining that Pearl professors were favoring people of the ethnic group and in grading and etc. Et and decided that there was a racism Pearl 
So his version of affirmative action, he called it la lutte contre le racisme, the struggle against, peu le racism against other ethnic groups, because they were, you know, the, the import export is dominated by them, public administration dominated by them, education dominated by them. But that is as a consequence of French policy and French educational policies. So you do not reverse that by basically turning petty grievances against the Pearl, which of which you had many, and saying that there was a racism Pearl, and use that as an instrument to prevent Pearls from having fellowships. So for five years, he just says he was going to freeze the Pearl out and send other ethnic groups to fellowships abroad. Right? That, I think, as a policy, it was actually misguided. But even then, he said there was a racism Pearl. Actually, for him, it was the opposite. The Pearl were using the structural advantage, which was the result of colonial domination of Guinea, to try to prevent not only him, to prevent him from succeeding, but also to continue the uh, supremacy in bureaucracy, in commerce, and in, in public and social life, right? And so, and, but in that struggle, the old Amica Gilbert Villar, which was his biggest political organization that opposed him, was also Pearl. So two political parties, one is progressive, has a, a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-professional association, and one was anchored in traditional Pearl uh, aristoc- aristocracy, right? It was grounded in Pearl aristocracy. The name Amica Gilbert Villar is even a, is a French name they had for it because it was also closer to French agenda and et cetera, et cetera, right? And they take that and say, ah, because his opponents are, are Pearl and he's gone after them, then it's anti-Pearl. Whereas in his government, you can Google. There's no point in which we're able to have a government where more than a third were not from Lufthansa. That is actually a, a fact, right? And, and so there's A exists, B exists is not actually a good logical argument. His opponents were Pearl, he was not Pearl, and therefore. That is actually, no. The opposition just happened to be there, and that's how the cookie broke in Guinea after colonialism. People were educated and were close to the aristocracy were Pearl, and people were not educated were people from the forest and market women and etc. He went there to get his vote. I mean, it's, it's um, right, and I often tell my friend to be very careful, to, to be very, very careful, because that actually can be so easily debunked. My only problem in Guinea, where I really have a problem in Guinea, is when people whose relatives went in Kambuaro stand up and make certain statements, you really want to defer to their sentiment. But there's always a point where I say, okay, you've said that, I grant you that, but they don't want to go that direction. Because the Kambuaro has also been a way of not talking about their own politics. And the fact that what Sebutel was saying that if the Pearl came to power, everybody shut out from commerce, education, administration, and etc. because their numbers were overwhelming in all those settings. That actually made sense to a lot of people in Guinea. Whether the Pearl would have done that or not is actually, I actually doubt. Some of them were quite like Telijalo, Baritroa. These were actually very, very people who understood nation building. They probably would not have done that. But everybody was afraid of the sheer power of, of the Pearl. And, and so he instrumentalized that. So, we, again, we really have to be careful. And, and, and we are at a moment in African history where we, we have to, to take stock, right, of what happened in a very smart way. And I don't actually like, because if I have to pick the Sekutu and the French any day, I pick Sekutu. If I have to say, oh, Sekutu, and I've said that, if I have to say choose between Sekutu and his old opposition to Futa Jalon, I still pick Sekutu. Okay. No, Even absolutely. Today. Even no, today. Absolutely. But I'm in agreement with you. Yes. But uh, again, state power is the thing we have to worry about. Emergency laws that the colonial powers left us have been used against opponents in Africa, whether it's in Guinea, in Kenya, in Zimbabwe, in etc. Et we have to be mindful of state power, especially the power of violence. Absolutely. And in terms of, okay, 
So um, I wanted to do two things now. Let's talk about the things that you feel Secretary should be praised for in terms of policy. And then maybe we can talk about the things that you feel. I mean, I remember in our class, you mentioned the point of secret trials should never have taken place and things like this. So let's speak about the, the good and the bad. Yeah, no, the, 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 the good actually is so overwhelming that, that I... I, I <laughs> no, no, but, but people, that's the irony, right? People focus on this thing because they actually can't think, they cannot talk substantively about his policies because it's actually overwhelming. Education, nas- nationhood, pan-Africanism, support for decolonization, defend the right of black people at the United Nations, gender policy. In 1978, UNESCO said it. Guinea was the only country in Africa where the university has 50-50. 50% of women, 50% of men. It was not fabricated because education was universal. And that has been reversed today. Right? In all of those regards, actually, it's unimpeachable. Right? But what I'm saying, actually, is that, you see, the thing about there's a dimension of the state. If we really want to be post-colonial, decolonial, however you want to, whatever you want to say that, the state as an instrument has to be decolonized. There's a certain fashion of understanding sovereign power, which we have to let go of. It does not fit us. That understanding of sovereignty is the one that said, well, in America, if you have an offense against state, like after 9-11, they have Guantanamo in the French election, he could, someone could easily point to all of these and tell them, what are you telling me? He actually went to France and said, what, all of these offenses against state, you have secret trials because you don't want how intelligence was obscene, you don't want all of those. And my answer has always been, we don't have to do it that way. And so where I am today is, I can tell you for sure that there was a permanent plot against Sikutule. I can tell you that the the invasion happened. I can tell you that they tried to murder him. But I cannot tell you for sure who is guilty because all these trials were secret. And and that's what I say. So I am stuck because I understand that all of these things happened. The French have recognized it. It's no longer secret. But I don't want to, I can't tell you who was there because... um, there was a, we said, did a regular the count, right? Scores being settled. Or who was there because they actually were part of that? Because all the trials were secret. And we don't have to give in that dimension of, of state power. And, and, and for me, that actually is the lesson. But it, it is not that the thing itself did not happen because that's real. Right? Yes. But secret trials, you do that, then I don't have, I, I can't tell you who, who did what. That, that Don't count yes. on me to vouch for you. I cannot vouch for mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. But I can neither vouch for the innocence of everybody because obviously they were not all innocent. Yeah, but I cannot, I cannot tell you that every single one of them individually was guilty because I can't tell you that either. Absolutely. In thinking about Pan-Africanism today, then and lessons we can draw from the uh, Sekulture's legacy and other Pan-African scholars and the continent today, what are we like? If you're talking to young Pan-Africanists today, what is some advice you're going to give us? There is something we say about that first generation of African leaders: Nyerere, Nkrumah, Murugeta, Sekulture, etc. There was a degree of selflessness, number one. There was a degree of pride. Like, they were actually proud people who did not debase themselves. They also believed in solidarity, unqualifiably. Sekutura took in people like Miriam Makeba, etc., etc. Of course, Nkrumah came. And they believed in African solidarity unquestionably, and it cost state money. It cost money to support liberation movements in, in, in Congo, in Algeria, in... in uh, Angola, Mozambique, and etc. Et it really was, it, right? But they believed in that. So they believed, they had integrity, they believed in, in they, they had commitments, right? They also believed in African solidarity. I am not sure that they had, at the level of institution making, that they were equipped to, to carry out sometimes what they wanted to do. But the thing itself that they desired, the way that manifests itself was actually real. And what it tells young Pan Africans is that 
Pan-Africanism did not collapse under its own weight. The mistake that people made on the way to Pan-Africanism were not always on the, of their own making, but that's not sufficient for us. What is What we have to do is to go beyond that, to recognize, to face their mistakes, and to move on without having to undercut what they were trying to do. Because those people changed the world. Nasser changed how Europe related to things that belong to us, Suez Crisis. Sekuture changed how we understand self Sekuture and Kuma together changed how we understand self-determination in Congo. Liberia and Ethiopia, yes, under Selassie, forced the world to have to decide whether international law can stay the same where people who were the victims of it become independent on the question of Namibia. And over 20 years, changed how people look at international law. Those people actually changed the world. We, we actually don't know. And, and, and so we have, we, 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 young Pan-Africans are chasing, go somewhere, well, he did this. No, 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 no. They actually accomplish things. Those are the places to start. They change how the law operates. They change how global politics operates. They change how the world looked at Africans. They may not have been equipped to give us the institutions that correspond to that, to those. And then in speaking to some, some of my listeners are going through the PhD process like me, in speaking to these people who are going to the next generation of African intellectuals, what are, what's your words of advice to them? <laughs> my word of advice to them, again, it's one of those things that's almost cliche. Sometimes people like me or my friends get exasperated when old Africans say, or even young people today, you know, think for yourself. I think we should. I don't think the disciplines that we have today, they came historically to answer certain questions. I think they answer our own questions. I don't think we should be looking ourselves through somebody else's lenses. I don't think we should necessarily just take up other people's judgment of us. And what I think the most is really to know us in the way that we don't. Pan-Africanism has not just been in ideology. What happened in Haiti was Pan-African, a bunch of former slaves who gave Haiti the constitution. What happened in Palmares was Pan-Africanism. Marcus Garvey's was Pan-Africanism. In time, in time when those things happen, if you place those in time in relation to what was happening around them at that time, they were actually far more advanced than what happened in other spaces. And so to judge Haiti today, the Haitian voice about what is happening in, in Haiti today is like to, 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 to make a negative judgment on Western, Western traditions because they said they are Greek and Greek is in the mess today. Greek I is in the that, mess I love today. that example. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but the um, Greeks, are who gave them their traditions? So looking at the state of Haiti today, or the fact that Palmyra disappeared, or Marcus Garvey did not succeed, is not an indictment of Pan-Africanism. That is the error we make. Otherwise, Rome gave Western civilization rule of law and all of that stuff. Look at Rome today. They can't even collect the garbage. Yes. Right? I mean, it's, it's not... It's, it, we, we have the most, you know banal reactions, I, I don't know even how to describe it, right? But it's very infuriating because it, it's actually it's, um, it's a lack of analysis. That's an analysis. One has to take Haiti for what it was when the American and the French Revolution also happened in that context. One has to look at what Marcus Garvey was proposing. When Marcus Garvey was proposing was network capitalism, Britain conquered the world by gobbling together family capital into corporations and, and, and occupying, making corporate territories that became colonies. I mean, these people actually saw something. That's what is amazing is that a lot of these people did not have the same education as other people, but they could sense something and they could see it. 
And so today in every, this is what I tell my young students here, in every school in America today, networking, networking is taught in, in business schools. Marcus Garvey saw that in 1910, that networking would be the future of capitalism. Marcus Garvey saw that. He couldn't, he couldn't express it formulated the way we do network theory today in our adult, uh, 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 business schools, but he saw that. So our trajectory is far more interesting than these quick snap judgments we make of individual people, individual episodes, and et cetera, can capture, and we should, we should get out of that. Absolutely. And I guess finally, um, we've again, because I think it's such a rich conversation, <laughs> what is the role of the African intellectual today? My friend, that's a long conversation. <laughs> but but I, I can tell you, I can tell you for sure that Fanon was right. Okay. <laughs> the, people, the people we talked about. Fanon actually was reflecting the, when he said each generation of must decide in, in relative obscurity, blah blah blah, and their mission, define their mission, betray it or realize it, and etc. That's those are the moments where uh, Frank Fanon left psychology and went to history. Haitians did what they could. At the time of the revolution, Palmer, they did what they could, right? Gavis did what he could or thought he could do. Even decolonization, those people did what they could. I think we really have to decide what have we done. And we have yet to answer that. I think Fanon was right. What have you done except self-aggrandizement? What have you done except criticize everybody for everything and never propose something concretely? What have we done? Sometimes I wonder, 30 years from now, what are they going to say these intellectuals in Africa today in the past 40 years have done? What institutions have they contributed to creating? Except applaud for every coup because they want to, 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 to make money. We train professors to go abroad and teach other people's children, myself included. Our athletes leave to go somewhere else and entertain other people. What have we done? I think it's a serious question, actually. And the conversation people had in Manchester during colonial rule. During colonial rule, Africans, diaspora, they met in Manchester to talk among themselves. In Paris, to talk about among themselves. When have African scholars talked together, not to say how brilliant their essay in philosophy and et cetera is, but to just answer a simple question. Where are we and what's to be done? Thank you so much. This has been an enriching conversation. People, as I said to you in the intro, this has been an honor for me and honor for us all. I hope to have Professor Grovergy in the future again on the podcast. Please like, comment, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Peace out. <laughs>